Welcome to season one, episode one of our brand new podcast series, Now As Then. We are so excited to start off this new adventure through time with you. In our very first episode, we are going to be talking about one of the most famous symbols of ancient Egypt, the Sphinx. The Sphinx stands guard at the pyramids with the head of a human and the body of a lion. It's made many appearances in modern culture from the 2016 movie Gods of Egypt to the adventures of Puss in Boots to my personal favorite, the book series Percy Jackson and the Olympians. But these modern iterations are not quite the same as the original Sphinx from ancient Egypt. Over time, the purpose of the Sphinx has changed from society to society. It has given a brand new image and even new meanings. The way we think about the Sphinx now is not at all related to the original purpose it was given. So how did the Sphinx travel this far, and how did it change along the way? Ask yourself, how did these adoptions almost entirely erase the original meaning of the Sphinx? Why did the Sphinx change? Hi, I'm Kat. I'm Nithya. Hi, I'm Steven. I'm Naomi, and welcome to Now Is Then, the time-traveling Sphinx. So we are here in UCLA Special Collections inside the Young Research Library looking at a photo album by Antonio Beato, a British-Italian photographer who was really into Egypt. This album is from 1887. There's a picture in here of the grape sphinx in front of what I think is Khafre's pyramid. There are a few guys standing in front of it to show just how big it is, like a typical tourist photo. In fact, the people have already cleaned the sand around the sphinx to make it appear from the desert, but they haven't yet built those things which prevent it from being submerged by sand again like you see today. Wait, did you guys notice how the pictures are taken from two different angles? Oh. So, like, one's from the left side of the Sphinx, and, like, one's from the right. So, the pyramids in the background are probably actually, like, two different pyramids. So, we know that this one from the front-on angle is the Pyramid of Khafre. What's the other one, then? That's a good question. (laughs) I know that both of these, like, exact angles are on the travel tips page for USA Today for the Sphinx Mm -hmm. and for tours of the Sphinx. So this is like the tourist angle of the Sphinx. (laughs) Also, if you look really closely at the picture, you can see like people climbing up the Nemes, which is like the headdress of the pharaohs on the Sphinx. Like they're climbing up on this like ancient monument, which is crazy because like today you think like you could never do that. Like the Sphinx is like untouchable because it's so protected by uh, the government. This just goes to show that fascination with the Sphinx is really timeless. Whether it's 2019 or 132 years ago in 1887, people really thought the Sphinx was cool and people wanted to capture that. So where do we start? Alright, we're going to start from the beginning in Mesopotamia. I know, what does that have to do with Egypt? But trust me, it's relevant. Mesopotamia was the very first place that a half-human and half-animal creature appeared. And of course, Mesopotamia was nearby Egypt, so they traded in ideas, and voila. Egypt creates their own composite creature, the Sphinx. The first time the Sphinx appeared in history was during the rule of King Jedifre. Now He is from the 4th dynasty of Egypt during the Old King around 2500 BC. His father was King Khufu, who was the builder of the Great Pyramid of Giza, during Jedefe's reign, we find a Sphinx statue of who we think is Queen Hedefres II, who is Jedefe's sister, but also his wife. 
Then his brother Khafre became king after he died, and that's where the much more well-known the Great Sphinx of Giza comes in. So where exactly is the Sphinx? Okay, so the Great Sphinx was carved into the rock near Khafre's Pyramid, which is in Giza with all the other Great Pyramids, and they're all located about five miles from Cairo. Also, just to give you some dimensions, this thing is massive. Like, just try to imagine this. The body is 240 feet long and 66 feet tall. Its eyes themselves are six and a half feet tall. Dude, I'm like 5'3". So the eye itself is taller than me. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's gigantic. It's the largest stone statue ever created by man, which is why it stands as such a huge symbol of Egypt. Can you tell me anything about the origin of the word sphinx? Okay, yeah. So when I was looking into these origins, oddly enough, I found two answers. So they say that the Greeks got the name Sphinx from the Greek word syphagine, which means to strangle. However, the Egyptians also got their word Sphinx from their word shesef ankh, which means living image. Now, living image relates to the purpose behind the image the Egyptians gave the Sphinx. This purpose goes pretty deep. The image of the Sphinx was created to embody all three aspects of the Egyptian pharaoh. The body was a lion, which represents the sun, and strength. This also symbolizes Ra, who is the sun god and the supreme god. He is the restorer of Mayat, which means order, which was a very important matter to the Egyptians. Horus and the pharaoh ruled together, like they were one person. They were the link between the gods and the people. Since they acted as one, they were both represented by the head. The sphinx was an image of strength in the lion, but also intelligence from the head of the pharaoh. So I've heard that sphinxes were a type of guardian figure. So what exactly were they guarding? Oh yeah, so t- uh, sphinxes were very often placed outside of temples and tombs to, you know, guard the person's possessions. So they had, would have those with them as they went into the afterlife. The Great Sphinx guards King Caffrey's tomb. Another example would be Sphinx Alley. It's a two-mile path lined by sphinx statues that connects the Luxor and Karnak temples. Did the sphinx have any other purpose? Yeah, actually, as we move to the Middle Kingdom we see the Sphinx aiding the Pharaoh into battle. And this is depicted on many uh, tomb walls and even some Egyptian palettes. Didn't the Sphinx also kind of resemble the Pharaohs? Yeah, exactly. So the head of the Sphinx was really made to look exactly like the Pharaoh. He even wore the Nemes, which is the headdress of the Pharaohs. King Amenemhet III from the Middle Kingdom added a mane and feline features to his sphinx heads to resemble the face of a lion. He presented himself this way to show how he was the protector and the guardian of Egypt. The sphinxes of Queen Hatshepsut from the New Kingdom had female features, obviously. Because she was a queen. Yeah. (laughs) And then in the New Kingdom, the sphinxes of Anom had the head of a ram, since this was his symbol. Amun was the god of the sky, and in the New Kingdom, the Egyptians merged him with Ra, creating Amun-Ra, and this was their new, like, supreme god. Since his symbol was a ram, and Ra's was the lion, they created the ram-headed lion. Today, many of these ancient sphinxes are housed in museums, which is a whole other problem that we're going to get into later. Anyway, you can find the sphinxes of Hatshepsut and the third at the Met. Also, the nose of the Great Sphinx is no longer attached, but is currently housed in the British Museum. Some say it fell off due to weathering, vandalism, but... Also, it's rumored that Napoleon shut it off during his conquest. We spoke to Marin, a PhD student in the Near Eastern Language and Cultures Department at UCLA, for some more information on the Sphinx. Alright, so can we just start off with you like telling us a little bit about yourself? 
Okay, so uh, my name is Marianne Ragged. I'm from Egypt. Uh, I had my BA in Egyptology and Business Administration, and then I um, had my MA in Egyptology. I worked for two years with Zeha Rice as a research assistant, and I worked on multiple digs in Luxor, Aswan, and so on. And I think I read somewhere that you were born in Egypt. Yeah. So how long? How like how much time have you spent there? Uh, in Egypt? Yeah. I've lived there my whole life. Oh, okay. So you I just... only came here in uh, September. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Um, so what are you kind of working on like right now? I'm working on workshop production. And um, so I'm looking at beads in uh, pre-dynastic Egypt. Okay. Yeah. And uh, how how were the beads produced and what does that add to its value and its meaning and how they were consumed and then discarded. Uh, so I'm looking at the life history of beads. Gotcha. <laughs> And what got you like into Egyptology, at, like from the start? Like why Egypt? Uh, that's a tough question because it it didn't happen in like a single moment. I know, like I, I I've always loved history, mm-hmm. and um, my I definitely remember my visit to the museum and Luxor <laughs> even before I started the program. Uh, so I think these like these two visits kind of left an impression, good impression. Gotcha. Okay, so let's get started with the Sphinx. When did you see it like first appear in Egypt, and what were its like main meanings, like significance, description? Uh, so I think the first uh, Sphinx statues uh, ha- like came about in the Dynasty Four of the Old Kingdom, uh, specifically uh, around the reign of Jedefra. So there is a statue, Sphinx statue of a queen, who we think it's head of Harris the second. Uh, she was a daughter of Khufu. Um, so it seems like by the time uh, of Jadafra and then afterwards Khafra, there is some sort of um, really strong association and um, uh, the solar cult kind of became prominent during mm-hmm. that time. Um, and that's when the Sphinx statues also happened to appear for the first time. So there's uh, like certain connotation between the Sphinx statues and the solar cult. Mm-hmm. The Sphinx was some sort of uh, an embodiment of the sun or Ra. Um, in later uh, texts, uh, we know that the Great Sphinx in Giza uh, was thought of or was called Horem Achet, which means Horus in the horizon. Um, and actually, if you look at it from a certain um, like perspective at a certain time of the mm-hmm. day, you actually see the Sphinx between the pyramid of Khufu and Khafra, so it's like two horizons and his rising in between. Oh, okay. So I think it, it, there's certain like um, emphasis on how the Sphinx is the sun. Uh, the temples, uh, there are temple in front of the Great Sphinx mm-hmm. of Egypt. Um, and during the 26th dynasty, which is like later period, uh, uh, 600-something BC, um, he, the Sphinx appear, apparently becomes associated with the god Horun, which is a Levantine god. It's not an Egyptian god, but uh, also related to Horus, the sun, mm-hmm. and this whole, <laughs> yeah, yeah. this whole reading of it. Um, yeah, and... Um, we see we see this kind of statues carry on since the old kingdom since the reign of Jadafra all the way until Greco-Roman 
And I've heard a lot of, like, opinions or different theories about, like, who built the Great, the great Sphinx. Sphinx yeah. yeah, what's your opinion? Um, well, the consensus seems to be that it's Khafra's mm-hmm. uh, statue. Because it's, like, in front of his pyramid or something. Yeah. Um, we're not really sure, but according to the, to the features of the face, it seems oh, yeah. to be Khafra. Especially that we don't have a lot of statues for Khufu. So we can't really compare. (laughs) But like, yeah, it's probably Gotcha. And then you just mentioned the Levant. So what was like Egypt's relationship with the Levant? Uh, This, I think it's since the pre-dynastic period and early dynastic period, there has been strong relations with the Levant, Uh, mostly trade and exchange. Uh, um, So when in Egypt you find uh, in the early dynastic period what we call cylinder seals, this is uh, something that's not native to Egypt. This has come from not from the like from Iraq, mm-hmm. um, and uh, also um, the idea of a griffin, which is very much related to the Sphinx, because a griffin is a composite creature. Mm-hmm. So composite creatures first appear in Mesopotamia. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, as a griffin, for example, and other other composite creatures, and they were first uh, they first appeared on these cylinder seals. So by the time we find like states coming into play and then there's trade relations and goods are being exchanged, we find these cylinder seals mm-hmm. as a sort of uh, state control over production and exchange of goods. Um, and with it you find the composite creatures and then you find composite creatures kind of spreading from Mesopotamia to almost everywhere. Else. Gotcha. So that's <laughs> where like the Egypt. idea of their like half animal, half man kinda came yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and then what about like ancient Greece? Like, what was their relationship with them as well? Um, I think the first evidence of relationships between uh, Egypt and the Aegean in general, um, probably during the second intermediate period and the beginning of the of the, of the New Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when there are like uh, in Tel Daba, which is a site in the north of Egypt, there is a palace. Uh, supposedly belonging to the Hyksos dynasty um, and there are uh, paintings in these uh, palace that very much resemble like in iconography resemble Minoan paintings mm-hmm. and Minoan motifs so um, that's kind of an influence uh, pottery and trade in um, in like uh, products and wine for example could have happened earlier and probably through the Levant because okay. uh, in the Levant, especially the coastal areas, by I think, um, prob- I, I can't pinpoint like a specific date, but uh, they were very much uh, active in terms of seafaring mm-hmm. trade. So they would be very much in contact with uh, the Aegean, and most of the products that have come to Egypt would be through the Levant. Um, then by the New Kingdom, you start seeing in um, texts and tombs a lot of references to um, like people and ethnic groups that we think come from this whole Aegean area, Crete and Cyprus and other mm-hmm. areas. And then there's also the sea people mm-hmm. coming in. Um, so yeah, it, it starts late in Egypt's uh, like history starts in the new kingdom but there's definitely evidence for it yeah and then like why do you think like the meaning of the sphinx like changed 
as like we move into Greek culture? Like, was it based on their like view of Egypt? Uh, it's hard to tell. I mean, the the Greek when they adopted certain aspects of Egyptian culture, they were very selective. Um, they picked the the like the uh, motifs or the parts of the Egyptian religions that would fit their own belief systems. So, like Isis, for example, became very prominent. Mm-hmm. I I don't know how they thought of the Sphinx. I think they were very. I'm sure they were very familiar with the idea of composite creatures mm-hmm. because of their relation to the front and Mesopotamia. Um, whether they thought the Sphinx is something evil. It's hard to tell, but it seems to be very associated in their culture with like evil women and mm-hmm. vengeance. And <laughs> right. Yeah. So the modern view of the Sphinx is like mostly closely related to the Greek perspective. So why do you think like we hold that perspective instead of like the Egyptian meaning of the Sphinx? I think it's because the idea of how the Sphinx is related to the sun god kind of got lost in the process. And no one really realizes this connection anymore. Um, perhaps for the early um, Greek visitors or merchants, or mm-hmm. the Sphinx was something they feared because if they came across the Great Sphinx, it, it's, it's a pretty big, uh, like statue, yeah. and it's it it they're probably associated with guarding something and probably even like warding off mm-hmm. evil so but perhaps it was fearful for them and that's what got carried on because the Greek culture is, is one of the major influencers for the Renaissance in Europe and so on that maybe so that's the idea that kind of become propagated and carried on into modern times. So, um, having spent like most of your life in Egypt, do you make any connections between like your own experiences in Egypt and your work? Yes. Um, so I because when I study ancient Egyptian culture, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things, a lot of things in the culture that kind of carries on until today in our practices. Like what? Uh, just like some sayings, like colloquial sayings in the language. Some. Some actual words from ancient Egyptian carries on into our modern language. Uh, Practices, uh, like, um, for example, uh, there's there's this idea of sebua, or like uh, a celebration after seven days of a birth Mm -hmm. of a a baby, and they would celebrate it, and um, maybe even like, start choosing the name after the seven days after, and during that celebration they would do certain things like put him in a, in a sieve and kind of shakes the baby yeah. <laughs> they, they do that um, so a lot of these things uh, seem to be very traditional and, and a lot of it um, appear in, uh, in ancient Egypt as well um, also when you look at the letters the way the talk and the way they think is very much similar to modern Egyptians. Um, unfortunately, a lot of Egyptians nowadays don't realize that link. Um, they think the ancient Egyptians were some sort of distant race that mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> became like wiped out and then modern Egyptians came. I don't know how they think of it this way, <laughs> but like unfortunately there is no connection with the past. 
mm-hmm. for a lot of Egyptians. But for me, I find that it's one of the things that kind of make me proud uh, being Egyptian is of, of that history and that culture, the good and the bad in it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You think this connection is like part of the reason why you got into Egyptology? Yeah, definitely. It's one of the reasons why I continued doing my MA and PhD in Egyptology. <laughs> gotcha. Oh, okay, we also read in your profile that you like go on excavations or you've been on some. Mm-hmm. So could you just like tell us a little bit about those and like, I don't know, maybe some of the coolest things that you've ever found or the weirdest things? So the first coolest thing I've ever found was um, we were in Luxor and uh, we were excavating in a court before, uh, in front of a tomb. Mm-hmm. There was a side chamber in the wall of the court, and uh, we would. It was full, f- full of rubble. So we would just photograph, draw, like crawl in, photograph, draw, and then remove a layer, and then go in <laughs> again. Yeah. Um, so wh- one day we, uh, I was inside, brushing off the surface so we can do the, our drawings and take the photographs, and then I felt something kind of moving underneath me. I didn't think much of it. Next day, when we removed that layer. Turns out I was sitting on top of a coffin lid. <laughs> I'm just so glad that it didn't break. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so it was wobbly, and that's what was wobbly. So, yeah. Wow. That's, that's so cool. That was the coolest thing, I think. <laughs> also, when, uh, when I was in Saqqara, but I, unfortunately I wasn't there when they excavated it, but um, I saw it in the storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this uh, small uh, vessel. Um, once you open it, uh, the smell of the of the, of the perfume that was inside, it's it's still very much oh, there. Wow. <laughs> it's there. That was preserved for a long time. That was so freaky <laughs> to me. I I did not believe that this could happen. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. I think that's everything. Yeah, think thank you so much for like <laughs> thank coming you and doing this for us. <laughs> I hope my answers were useful. In yeah, a way. <laughs> it was so interesting. So basically that's the extent of what I know about the Sphinx, but where did it go from ancient Egypt? Let's talk about where the Sphinx was going from ancient Greece to the 1500s. The characteristics of modern versions of the Sphinx are closest to what the Greeks had in their version. Like Marion said, the Levant was an established connection between Greece and Egypt, but there were also many seafaring travelers. Both of these are ways that Egyptian culture, including the Sphinx, probably arrived in Greece. When you say Greek Sphinx, are you talking about the Oedipus story? That's definitely the most famous version. Sophocles' play Oedipus the King has a scene where the Sphinx is the tyrannical ruler of Thebes, and to enter Thebes, Oedipus must answer her riddle. There's also Hesiod's Theogony, where the Sphinx is a daughter of Orthrus and Chimera. In Greece, the Sphinx is a destructive force. It's hard to say which of these came first because they were probably stories told orally before they were written down, but both of these say the Sphinx is female, and every other Greek and Roman version of the Sphinx is also a female destructive force. In ancient Egypt, they had male and female Sphinxes. Is that true to Greek too? This is definitely a change that happens when we get to Greece. In Greece, the Sphinx is a female character that appears in many stories. She's still a protector, but she's definitely the bad guy. She's also one single character that appears in many different stories. Part of what Marion told us was that aspects of Egyptian culture were adopted into what fit with Greek culture and mythology that already existed. 
Maybe an explanation for the Sphinx being a woman is her role as Oedipus's opposition. It would make sense that the binary opposition of good and evil that Oedipus represents mirrors the opposition of male and female. Are these myths the only mentions of the Sphinx in Greece? Greek and Roman mythology have the same Sphinx character mentioned by Hesiod and Sophocles. There are also many works of art that include the Sphinx, but it doesn't quite look like the Great Sphinx of Egypt. The Greek and Roman Sphinx has wings and sometimes the head of a bird. These depictions are mostly based on Theogony and Oedipus the King. Greek and Roman historians don't really mention the Great Sphinx, although Pliny the Elder is an exception. He is a Roman historian who said that the Great Sphinx was a, quote, wondrous object of art. So how come he's the only one who talks about the Sphinx? Wouldn't travelers of that time have visited the pyramids and seen it? Well, in the modern day, the sand around the Sphinx is dug out, so it's always visible. But in reality, the sands would cover up the Sphinx and uncover it in a kind of cycle. What about after Rome? Did Europe care about the Sphinx? Well, let's look at the Middle Ages. This is Europe from the 5th century CE to the Renaissance. With the rise of Christianity, Sphinx imagery was adopted into religious art, much like how the Greeks did with Egypt. This Sphinx also had wings, but the Bible doesn't actually mention the Great Sphinx at all. So it's likely that the Sphinx in Christian art is just from Rome. Basically, all of the instances we have of the Sphinx during medieval Europe come from the church. Wait, so we only have Christian sources? The Middle Ages weren't exactly a good time for Europe, so most of our lasting written records and preserved art is what was protected by the church. So while the Sphinx had a role in Greek religion, it didn't actually serve a purpose in Christianity other than in art. If we turn to parts of the world where Islam was the primary religion during this time, we have a lot more information. Islam's golden age was from the 8th century to the 14th century CE, so we have way more art and information from areas like what is now Israel, Iraq, and Iran. The Sphinx was a pretty common motif in Islamic art. How different was their Sphinx from the Greco-Roman Sphinx? Well, it still had wings like in Greece, but its symbolic value was almost completely different. This Sphinx was a positive and protective figure that could be masculine or feminine. From this region, a lot of the Sphinx art was on pottery. Like what Marion said about the Egyptian Sphinx, the Sphinx in Islamic art was also a solar figure with references to astrology and the zodiac. This region's geographical location and its Sphinx's characteristics indicate that it's probably a version directly derived from ancient Egypt, especially if you consider the strong relationships between the Levant and ancient Egypt. As we can see, the Sphinx changed both physically and in its symbolic characteristics over time as it moved around the world. In Greece, it became a tyrannical Riddler figure with wings. In the Middle Ages in Europe, the symbol persisted in art, though it appears less frequently. In Islamic art, we see the Sphinx's wings again, but its non-physical characteristics are closer to the Sphinx of Egypt. We can still see hints of the original Egyptian Sphinx. Each version mentioned is, of course, a generalization about the Sphinx of each period. Within time periods and regions, there are many nuanced differences between individual depictions, but the versions we talk about are fairly representative to their respective culture. In all of these versions, the composite figure of the human head and lion body are common, but almost all other aspects have changed. Each culture imported the symbol of power, but arranged its features to meet their individual needs. <laughs> 
Now, moving further on into time, we can trace the sinks from the ancient times slowly into more modern ages. We're talking the European Renaissance, Napoleon, and the English and French rivalries. There were sphinxes even in the European Renaissance? Uh, sure. Although they were more Greek than Egyptian, there certainly were many sphinxes throughout the Renaissance. Artists seemed to enjoy replicating the Greek sphinx, even adding discolorations and cracks to RKI's their work. For example, there's one small marble relief in a museum in Vienna that depicts a ruler on a sphinx throne with some deliberate weathering and fractures. Isn't it strange how they replicated the Greek sphinx, though? Why not the Egyptian one as well? This gets into our main discussion of how the sphinx changed throughout time. Those in the Renaissance were really fascinated with classical culture digging up Greek sphinxes and replicating them. They probably didn't even know they were Egyptian. Well, it really puts into perspective how long Egypt has existed. I mean, even Herodotus, one of the first documented travelers to Egypt, is like 1,500 years removed from the Old Kingdom. He supposedly visited Egypt around the 27th dynasty, which is the late period. So you can see how the European Renaissance was even further away from the first sphinxes. Earlier, you also mentioned Napoleon. I know he campaigned in Egypt and tried to document every possible part of Egypt, but what did he have to do with the Sphinx specifically? Have you heard of the Sphinx's missing nose? Yeah, the face on the Great Sphinx of Giza doesn't have a nose, right? Supposedly, Napoleon is the one that shot the nose off with cannons while campaigning in Egypt. Wait, really? No, that's just a rumor. In reality, Napoleon caused the revitalization of interest in Egypt from Europeans. This begins the discussion of Orientalism, right? I know that foreign powers decided to just take artifacts out of Egypt, like legally or illegally, without really consulting the Egyptians themselves. So the Europeans began to study Egypt, but neglected to truly attempt to understand them through the native perspective, instead imposing a Eurocentric view over them, tainting all early research we have now with super racist stuff. Just think about how there are sphinxes in museums around the world like the Met. Many artifacts like cylinder seals, ivories, and other stone statues with sphinxes depicted on them now reside in European museums. Should these artifacts be returned? I don't know. That's a difficult question. Who does ancient Egypt belong to? Does the past belong to anyone? The field of Egyptology is still very Eurocentric. Although this discussion applies to all of Egyptian culture, we can discuss this specifically in regards to the sphinx as well. Sometimes, whether these artifacts were acquired legally or not is unclear. These are issues that I think can continue to be discussed as we move forward through time. While the question of who the past belongs to is probably impossible to answer, what matters is that we treat cultures of the past with respect as we continue to learn about them. I really agree with the point that the Sphinx people know today is mostly Greek Sphinx instead of Egyptian ones. It's really just a subject which has some very specific meanings, and people who use it may only use one of its symbolisms. Like what? Well, this actually mainly dates back to the Oedipus myth. And many scholars like to analyze that myth. If you know something about structuralistic approach, you must have heard of the big name Levi Strauss. He said that the riddle of the Sphinx is a mythical context, cannot be pro provided with an answer, and that the hero is destined to kill the Sphinx to complete his journey. This sounds like the description of heroes slaughtering a dragon. Yes, exactly. A hero's guessing a riddle is almost guaranteed when encountering a sphinx, just as that a dragon is to be slaughtered. 
a western dragon of course yeah i do remember that in the novel goblets of fire harry potter had to answer a riddle of a sphinx to get into the inner part of the maze good point and that brings about the point that i have observed about morning sphinx and i think this is uh, almost happens in every cases that the grace uh, things have changed along time this is that the sphinx riddle is to be answered do you remember the sphinx uh, riddle uh, I, I i like to repeat it. it goes like this first think of a person who lives in disguise who deals in secrets and tells not but lies next tell me what's always the last thing to mend the middle of middle and end of the end and finally give me the sound often heard during the search for a hard to find word now string them together and answer me this which creature would you be unwilling to kiss mm, there's not much egyptian elements in this riddle though but the answer was spider anyway and she broke uh, the answer into three parts and whenever harry got one part right she began smiling to harry which kind of is giving her away. And I really like that Sphinx from the second episode of The Adventures of Puss in Boots, she didn't eat the cat after three wrong answers. And later she gave away the guarded treasure because she failed to find a riddle that Puss could guess right. Yes, riddle guessing is almost equivalent to Sphinx in this context. And people like to play around that. People just like to appeal to it for their own sake, but not actually referring to the true Egyptian myth. Another symbolic characteristic of the Egyptian Sphinx is a guardian of mysterious civilization. And this time, even though people are talking about the Grey Sphinx, people still just use whatever evidence they want to support an argument. I have to say I might be doing the same thing right now. Oh, what are you referring to? I mean, that the Sphinx gives people a sense of mystery, so that people may be open to any wild arguments, for example, aliens. I used to be very interested in this subject, and I advise you to check out a book called Architects of the Underworld, Unriddling Atlantis, Anomalies of Mars, and the Mystery of the Sphinx. What are those books about? This is a book discussing those magnificent achievements of ancient civilizations, as might be held by ancient aliens. It used all kinds of evidence and relates them with the Sphinx in suggesting that the redating of the Sphinx it might be extremely old and associated with another civilization, Atlantis. This is supported by a supposed archaeology discovery that Egyptians used materials, the stone which built the pyramids, and Sphinx was not rich in the natural environment. Wasn't the Sphinx actually built with limestone, which was readily available in the area? And true, but this was how that book built his argument. It's not my fault to represent it. Uh, it's just to show that sometimes scholars assume weird facts to show their arguments. Well, the our author then proposed that the natural material was actually rich in America, one of the possible places where it might have been Atlantis. And he later deduced that trade might happen between those two civilizations. True. People really just use the Sphinx to justify their own opinions in this case. So what's up with the Sphinxes in museums? Are they in museums in Egypt? There are many ancient Egyptian artifacts, Sphinx included, in museums in Egypt, but there are many more in other museums around the world. The question is, where do these artifacts really belong? I mean, if they're from ancient Egypt, then shouldn't the Egyptians have rights to them? 
or do they belong to those who found them? So who owns the past? Also, as we have seen, things have changed significantly over time. Is this okay? These are all difficult questions. Almost everything about the Sphinx we see today is different from what the ancient Egyptians knew. The image, purpose, and symbolic meaning of the Sphinx changed over time and between societies. On one hand, it seems like erasure of ancient Egyptian culture. All of these cultures took the symbol and aesthetic of the Sphinx and changed other aspects to whatever they wanted. On the other hand, seeing the Sphinx in the modern day helps connect us to the past and create interest in Egypt and history. Whether this is through movies or visiting museums, our look at the past is just an exploration of who we are as human beings. Just like how each iteration of the Sphinx tells us about what was important to each culture, our own versions of the Sphinx and the way we look at ancient Egypt tells us about what is important to us. Whatever your opinion is on the matter, thank you for listening to this episode of Now SN. We hope you enjoy learning about Sphinx with us. Special thanks to Courtney Jacobs and Simon Lee at the UCL Library for help with research and access to special collections, DG Whitmore from Digital Archaeology Lab, and Tom Garbalotti at Humtech for helping us with the equipment. UCLA Studio 22 for providing recording spaces, Dr. Elizabeth Carter for help providing us with helpful background information, Marianne Regeb for giving us her time and knowledge. My roommate Brittany for translating French sources, and Robin Price, our awesome instructor, for her hours and hours of work that made this podcast possible.